Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. We'd like to thank new listeners who reached out to us recently, quite a few. Some of those include Stu Gregg. Uh, he's the guy behind the great aesthetic death label, who uh, are known for fluority and esoteric and quite a few others. And also Brian Deese. And thanks so much to Brian and other listeners who have donated to the cause or purchased Radical Research shirts. We're actually out of shirts already, but we're going to make more, and we'll kind of let you know through our various means on um, how to purchase those. But thanks for the support. We were kind of amazed that that many people wanted uh, shirts about a podcast about music. A <laughs> <laughs> hunter doesn't even have one yet. I don't. Are you Are you upset with me about that? I'm always late to the party, man. <laughs> I was, uh, ever the bridesmaid. <laughs> hunter, ever the bridesmaid again. <laughs> You can always contact us at radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. That's also our PayPal ID if you'd like to donate to help with hosting costs, equipment upgrades, and the like. Please give us a review on iTunes. That's extremely important to us as well. It really helps people find the show. So on the evening we're recording this episode, Hunter, um, a lot of the U.S. is in the grip of a polar vortex. Do you find that completely appropriate for the music we're going to be spotlighting? We're about to talk about polar vortex music. I wish we'd gone back to Iowa for this one. Man, me too. I, my brothers are in Iowa and Minnesota. And, um, Ooh, it's Minnesota like, min- like getting hit the hardest. Yeah, it's like minus 25 there. And um, they're coping. But yeah, I was going to send you out there in, um, you know, kind of in the field to see if you could spot Immortal or Ildjarn or somebody. <laughs> I, I have a feeling there's something, in, you know, there's some Norwegians involved here in the polar vortex. But One of your brothers is in Blashrig, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought so, man. It gets really cold this time of year. (laughs) So some pretty grim and frostbitten kingdoms out there in (laughs) in Iowa. Radical Research 25 focuses on a man named Peyton, Uh, P-Y-T-T-E-N. His real name is Eirik Hundeven, but he'll henceforth be known as his popular moniker, Peyton. He worked out of a studio in the 90s called Grieghallen in Bergen, Norway. Now, Bergen is on the west coast of Norway, uh, the Grieg Hall is named after Bergen-born composer Edvard Grieg, primarily a concert hall. It uh, it also serves as a conference and exhibition center. But, you know, Peyton somehow was able to reel in these satanic degenerates and record some really <laughs> classic music, some music that's just so typical of, of the time in Norway and I, I think really kind of definitive for that time in Norway. And I don't think anybody put a stamp on black metal the way Peyton did. No, he's like in a lot of ways as much a part of the early architecture as any of the artists themselves. Cause he defined that, that sound. We'll get into that. It's, it's fascinating. You know, it's fascinating how these bands hooked up with this guy, um, this guy, a little bit more about this guy. He was in a few bands in the early eighties, uh, that went by the name of Tornerose and blind date. Then in 1990, somehow he got a gig at Grieg Holland. His first metal productions in Grieg Holland were demos by Norwegian bands Amputation, Paraplegic, and Old Funeral. So early on, he was working with guys that, you know, would go on to form bands such as Immortal, Hades, and Burzum. And these guys would return to him time and again. 
uh, it's really to, it's still a mystery to me how these bands in their demo stages ended up gaining entry to Grieg Hall and, and access to Peaton. You really do have to kind of wonder about the price point. Because, I mean, if, if, you know, if you go online, you can see it's a grand structure. Oh, it's um, beautiful. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And it's like, how does a demo level Norwegian death metal band afford this? Yeah, I don't there know. Might be some sort of like government subsidy or, or grant or something. You know, mm-hmm. like Eson and Samoth won a grant for Thou Shalt Suffer that allowed them to record. So. Yeah, right. I, I think the Scandinavians, and let, we can include Finland in that, even though they're not technically Scandinavian, but they've always been so open to music of the youth, even the extreme, extreme stuff, you know. Right. Um, there was an acceptance of that early on, and um, I, I suppose the, the older generation understood it as uh, art rather than any kind of big threat. Now, I'm sure there were a lot, plenty of people in Norway at a certain time that were a little bit scared of what was going on. But, <laughs> well, um, yeah. Yeah, but it, but anyway, yeah, you wonder about that because I mean, go online, look at look at Grieg Hall, and maybe we'll put a link in the show notes. It's this modernist architecture. I think the designer was a Danish guy. Construction was started in '67, completed in May '78, and it just doesn't look like the kind of place that would be cranking out amputation and old funeral demos. Really, <laughs> yeah. just fascinating, fascinating stuff. But there we are, and th- there we are in 1990. And we also tried to find information on Peyton, uh, especially through the way of like interviews or things like this. And yeah. uh, he seems to be almost as shadowy a figure as some of the bands he worked with. It's very. I would say more so. I would say more so because you can find interviews on Burzum and Hades and all these other bands. It, there's nothing on him. It's it's a little strange. One little more tidbit about Peyton before we launch into into the metal that he was responsible for bringing into the world or partly responsible for. He's the father of one of Norway's most successful <laughs> professional team handball players. Don't you love that? I love that. Yeah. Love, love it. Perplexing, a bit iconoclastic. We're going to launch in. We'll get into the uh, the sounds and textures and everything that Peyton and Grieg Holland uh, brought to these bands. But first, I want to hear one of those very, very early demos, uh, one of one of Peyton's first metal productions as well. Uh, it's going to be by the band Old Funeral, and it's going to be a song off of their Abduction of Limbs demo. This is a track called Skin and Bone. We'll check out about a minute of it. Three. Love that title, by the way. <laughs> I feel like that that's like a missing disharmonic orchestra title. Skin and Bone or Abduction no, of no, Limbs. No, no, Abduction of Limbs. Absolutely. <laughs> they got abducted as like at the same time as the Hermaphrodite, Hermaphrodite choirs. Yeah. <laughs> limbs and choirs, man. Limbs and choirs, skin and bone. <laughs>
Edvard Grieg, perhaps turning in his grave. <laughs> I'm certain. <laughs> Maybe disinterred, desecrated by the band, put back in the grave, and then turning in the grave. <laughs> perhaps it was Grieg's limbs who they abducted. Yeah, maybe. Do we hear any hallmarks of Peyton and Grieg Hall in there? Not really. Yeah. It just kind of sounds like a raw sort of death rash demo. Yeah, very. I hear Voivod in the beginning of that and then some destruction. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Early Voivod. Oh, of course. Yeah. So the next two tracks we're going to play are off of iconic uh, Norwegian black metal records. This is where you start to hear uh, the Peaton and Grieg Holland production aesthetic come into focus. We're, we're going to start by playing what I would consider one of the greatest black metal songs of all time. I think this is sort of the genesis of trance black metal, um, a form that would kind of take on a life of its own later. It's Detsam Angang Var by Burzum. Um, and then after that, we're going to follow up with maybe an even more iconic track um, from Mayhem's De Mysterious um, album uh, called Life Eternal.
those really do set up what Peyton and Grieg Holland give to these bands. That cavernous, monolithic quality that really is a producer understanding the needs of these bands. He shows a remarkable sensitivity to these artists. You know, it's like somebody coming completely from the outside. I mean, it says a lot about Peyton's intuition as a producer that he's able to, like, use this room, which is obviously, you know, it obviously has the capacity for, you know, very hi-fi, glossy productions in, in terms of the technology and the space. But, like, he somehow, like, brings this, and cavernous is the word. I should have probably broken out my thesaurus. Because, <laughs> looked up like, reverb and went and went with the synonym right right, right, right <laughs> yes because i mean like it really does kind of sound like it's recorded in some sort of cave but yeah i mean it's like this guy somehow without any real familiarity with these with this you know aesthetic and this genre like kind of defines it kind of like sort of paves the road you know going forward it's interesting because what before I knew anything about Grieg Holland and what it was, you know, I was seeing it on early enslaved albums and, you know, of course, the first Burzum album, which incidentally was the first full album that he, you know, ever produced at Grieg Holland. Pretty monumental album in terms of uh, its historical place. But before I before I knew what it was, I always just kind of did picture it as like a like a huge cave that actually just had kind of a soundboard in it, you know, like Yeah, yeah, so did I. I knew that wasn't what it was, but it's certainly how it sounded. And I always just went there in my mind in terms of like thinking about the creation of it and seeing this name on some of these albums and and how they were kind of sounding. I think another mark of his production is it's sort of like it's rawness and grandiosity in equal measure. Right. It's so complementary to what the bands are doing. These bands are obviously very raw, scathing in terms of their material and what they're doing. And it just seemed like he had an innate understanding of black metal and what these bands are trying to achieve and really what you could get out of it as a deep listening experience because he was neither trying to tease out everything that was raw about them nor was he trying to slick them up too much, yet he was always kind of giving them this edge of epicness and, and grandiosity. I think that's one of his major trademarks is that balancing yeah. act, is that balancing act. Yeah, I mean, I think he understands sort of the binary nature of black metal. And I mean, you described it. It's like, you know, this sort of savagery and like stripped down feral attitude, but also like this bombastic like romantic nature of the music. How many producers could actually capture that? I mean, I kind of, I think about him like, it's sort of like in, in terms of his alien relationship to this music is like, kind of like Colin Richardson dealing with symphonies of sickness. I was just going to bring up, bring that up because Colin Richardson came into carcass at a time when they had a disastrous experience for their first album, reek of putrefaction, where they went through something that a lot of bands of that type went through at that time, which was people at whatever studio they're recording at, having no idea what the hell was going on, not understanding it, doing things terribly wrong, trying to make it quote unquote, right. And then Colin Richardson comes along and totally got it, had that innate understanding that I think Peyton has as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
I got to say, though, <laughs> you know, I've read a lot of interviews with bands over the years, and they, they talk about this like frustration, like, you know, Vo- Voivod have done it, Destruction have done it, uh, Carcass have talked about it. So many other bands have talked about this where, you know, they were really frustrated with like going into a studio that nobody had any idea what the hell was, you know, this kind of music was. But some recordings that came out of that were actually kind of charming and, and have their own value just be, no, just because they are sort of flawed, right? You wouldn't want them They're, any they're almost way. better because of it. Yeah, in a way, in a way. I mean, you're, you're, you're certainly glad that Carcass found Colin and Colin found Carcass because right. Symphonies is exactly how it should sound. It's perfect. And, yep. But yeah, yeah there's, there's something to be said for, for, for both sides. No, but it, you know, it, it was all frontier territory in yeah. death metal and black metal. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like you're listening to the process of all these people trying to figure out how do you capture this chaos on the tape? And yeah. how do you harness it into something listenable? Let's get into Emperor. I mean, if you want to talk about this cavernous thing, this like highly reverbed stuff that just sounds like it's it's a million miles wide, I think yeah. Emperor's in the Nightside Eclipse carries that atmosphere really well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, like this is vast music. You know, it's almost it is cosmic music in a lot of ways. And I mean, you're talking about. I'm not going to get into into rankings here but like you know if somebody put a gun to my head and said what's the greatest black metal album ever I, i'd probably default to nightside eclipse hmm. um I, it, it's okay maybe the maybe bergtot i don't know but i mean like i don't know that there's any album that defines sort of the the grandeur and the wildness of that second wave of black metal better than nightside eclipse <laughs> and everybody like People talk about, like, we have friends. We won't name them. One, <laughs> one of them lives in Philadelphia. Uh, and okay. he always says that the sound sounds like shit. And I would patently disagree with that. I think the sound sounds perfect for what it is. I would want it to sound any other way. I, I think at times I've wished the keyboards were dialed down just a hair in the mix. Sure. That's just me. But you're right, man. This This is so emblematic of this entire thing that was happening in Norway and this entire sound that was coming out of Grieg Holland at the time. And in no way do I want to divert the conversation from Peyton, but, but it, it must be said, these guys were like 18 years old when they made this. Like, like this is a piece of work that a 35-year-old, a seasoned professional would be proud of. Yep. You know? Yep. Like, so I, I think that it, it bears at least mentioning the precocity of these musicians. I think the greatest example of that ever is Ivar Bjornsson from Enslaved. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to talk about Ivar. Because <laughs> at 14, <laughs> you were nowhere close to doing what he was doing, right? <laughs> Dude, like, I was like trying to figure out how to like, like gracefully French kiss girls. You know? <laughs> like, this guy's like, oh, I'm just going to like help invent a style of music. Right. You know? Like, whatever, Ivar. Hail Evar, man. Show off. <laughs> but a band that's very close to Enslaved Emperor here. Uh, this is the Burning Shadows of Silence from In the Nightside Eclipse.
things to mention here is how Peyton is able to corral all these different sounds into something into, into like a like a manageable mix. And like going back to the Colin Richardson comparison, like it, it's sort of like Symphony's Sickness, where you have a sound that is so jumbled and complex. You have all these sonic artifacts. You have all like these interminglings of chord voicings and you know chaotic drumming and everything. Like producers at the time didn't really have like the the intellectual infrastructure or wherewithal like to understand how you like somehow siphon all of this noise and chaos into something that is listenable. And I mean, Peyton obviously demonstrates that capacity here. I mean, you've got all like, you've got all these like open chords and the keyboards and the howling vocals. And I mean, like, you know, in, in a lesser producer's hands, be an absolute mess. But he is somehow able to translate it into something that's both intimidating and somehow poetic. There's a reason that nearly all of the foundational Norwegian black metal bands went to Peaton and Grieg Hall in time and time again. Right. I, and it's evidenced here. I mean, I look at the place. I know what the place is. I still, I'm still wondering like what what the cost was per hour. But not knowing that, I'm just assuming that this was this was a matter of like this guy probably didn't charge as much as uh, other producers may have, and um, really wanted to do this stuff because he was taking jobs left and right and seemed to really be in. He was he's kind of a cohort with these bands, and it was just a very successful thing for for years. He's still doing it. I mean, he's still he's still done some of the later Burzum albums for whatever that's worth. He still records Eternus uh, and some other things. Not as prolific as he used to be, but he's clearly in, into this to some degree. Right. When we talk about black metal, a lot of people like kind of liken it to this necro sound, right? And these bands, none of this stuff that we're hearing tonight, and even beyond what we had time to, to play, but some of the other bands he did, were not really going for total necro. I mean, rawness, yeah. rawness yeah. has to be there. Something really primal and ugly has to be part of this. But, you know, this is not necro in the way of like a Stryborg or an Ildjarn or something like that. No, 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 not at all. Right. This is about kind of capturing that fire and making it burn a little brighter. Dark Throne never went to Greek Holland. That was interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. Gee. No, because they were obviously going for something even more primal. Quite telling. There's although, like, there's, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, although Gorgoroth went, they're not too far away from Dark Throne in terms of their sonic aesthetic. Yeah, but there, there's a sort of like depth and elegance to those first three Gorgoroth records that kind of puts them outside of the, there's a, you know, there's a cruelty that, um, that, you know, aligns them with Dark Throne. Sure. But there's a, a, a depth that I think sort of situates them like within the context of all these other Greek Holland bands. Fair enough. I yeah. think so. Yeah, good point. And now a word from our sponsor. Lamentations of the Flame Princess is the brutal and wondrous tabletop role-playing game out of Finland. Lamentations has a setting book directly inspired by black metal, frostbitten and mutilated. Explore the devoured land, be hunted by the Viking Amazons of the Metal North, get stomped by the frost giant of Hate Mountain, and have all your words stolen by the Mystic Owls. Last year, Frostbitten and Mutilated won four Ennie Awards. 
the premier awards of tabletop RPGs, including the Gold Award for Best Monster slash Adversary, Silver Award for Best Interior Art, Silver Award for Best Writing, and Silver Award for Best Setting. Frostbitten and Mutilated is written for Lamentations, but is easily compatible with any popular class and level RPG rule system. For the print version, you can get 25% off at the LOTFP web store at www.lotfp.com using the coupon code RADICALFM. That's RADICALFM, F as in Frostbitten, M as in Mutilated. One coupon code per order. For the PDF version of the book, in our show notes, we're going to include a link that includes a 50% discount code. Offer expires February 28th, 2019. The next act we're going to play is from Hades. It's called Hecate, Queen of Hades. This is actually, there's sort of a, I don't want to say marginal, but they're certainly less iconic than most of the bands that we're going to discuss tonight. Um, they're actually one of the first Norwegian black metal bands um, that I got into, uh, mostly via Alicia Morgan's review of their, in my opinion, amazing debut album, Again, She'll Be in Metal Maniacs in early 1995. Th- to me, um, this is an argument against anyone who says that Norwegian black metal is inherently bad sounding or the productions are inherently somehow neglectful. I think this album sounds perfect. Definitely very inspired by Viking era Bathory, but with a fire that you could expect from a young Robespierre black metal sort of band. Yeah, let's give a listen.
See, that's a great example of sort of the experience I have when listening to a lot of this guy's <clears throat> productions is like all the reverberation and sort of like echo chamber obfuscation right. on a level that kind of makes you hear things that possibly aren't even there. It's like shadow notes or, or just um, implied things. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. There's a lot of phantom sound in, in like these early black metal productions, almost like sort of, it has like a kind of hallucinogenic quality about it. Yeah. Good point. Now the next song we're going to play has almost nothing hallucinogenic or psychedelic about it. It's one of the more blazing, brutal uh, songs from one of the more blazing, brutal albums ever <laughs> recorded uh, in Norway or otherwise. This is Immortals Battles in the North, a track we're going to play from that. In fact, we're going to play the entire song, Moonrise, Fields of Sorrow, because it's just a mere two plus minutes. Uh, one of the few songs we'll have ever played in its entirety. But this will be it's fun because you'll you'll see, I think, how Peyton and Grieg Holland handles uh, this kind of material as well and what it comes out sounding like here. So this is, um, this is from the great Third Immortal album. Strap on your parkas and get your battle axe. This song slaps polar vortices in their faces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Iowa, come on. You got... You ain't nothing. Oh, you ain't got shit on Blash Rick's son. <laughs> All right. Let's roll. That's probably the, the most 
abrupt ending since uh, King Diamond's Father Picard. <laughs> and, Dude, I, and, I, hold, hold on, hold up, hold up. I'm glad you said that because that's my only problem with the eye. Yeah, yeah, mine too. That song just gets going and you're like so excited for where it's going to take you. And then you're like, oh, Stops. I guess they just didn't have anything else for us. Okay, <laughs> too bad. Anyway, great album otherwise. And like some of the most antisocial black metal ever. <laughs> but I say some of because we're going to play a track in a little bit that will definitely trump Immortal in terms of <laughs> hatred and just, you know, a, a will to end all human life. Right. We'll get to that later, though. I'm getting ahead of myself, as I, as I so often do. Well, how do you, yeah, how do you hear the immortal coming out of Greek Hall? And it actually, it, it still has that massive, massive, massive sound, though, despite it the does, speed. It does, but like, it also has this very pinched quality. And I mean, especially if you compare it to the two immortal records before, yeah. which were much more, I mean, you know, the first immortal records, basically an homage to Bathory. Um, but, you know, Pure Holocaust is, you know, just like, I mean, I love it to death, but I mean, that is like textbook Norwegian black metal. Right. It's like it's like someone wanted to ask me if someone asked me like what does Norwegian black metal sound like, you know I'd I'd probably play them that it'd be you like give if them pure Holocaust you give them the first Satyricon maybe sure yeah it's like if somebody asked me like what death metal sound like I would play them like you know the first two Sinister records or something you know <laughs> right like I, I do love those they're not my favorite death metal records I love them but like you know what I'm saying like in terms they're of definitive. Like, they, the they building de- blocks of yeah exactly they define like, the genre. Yeah, the essential proteins of the genre, yeah. like yeah, are located within those albums. But yeah. yeah, like Battles in the North, like and basically like strips away all the atmospherics that we typically associate with Norwegian black metal. But but it, but it, then it but oddly, um, it takes on a, an atmosphere all its own. Battles in the North and Blizzard Beasts are like singular records within the black metal pantheon, right? And there's nothing else quite like those records. Nope, I I agree with you. And it's funny, uh, both Immortal and then another band we're going to look at later, Enslaved, uh, and probably maybe one more of these that we're spotlighting this episode. You know, they all at some point went over to record at Abyss Studios with Peter Teichgren, and both of them would come back at some point to Grieg Holland, and, you know, they've, they've both since gone elsewhere as well. Immortals All Shall Fall, by the way, I just want to mention, was recorded half in Grieg Holland, half in Abyss, very strange. I, not anything that I would consider typical of a Grieg Holland sound at all on that album either. We're going to move forward to two bands that uh, happen to feature a guy by the name of Infernus on guitar. Uh, the first one is the debut by a band called Borknagar. This was a this was a band led by Oystein Brun. I, I think most people that listen to our podcast are probably familiar to some degree with Borknagar. This first album is really singular in their discography. I think. And the only one recorded in Greek Holland. Yes. And I think this album is actually criminally underrated when we talk about the canon of second wave Norwegian black metal. I think, I mean, I think it gets overshadowed by, you know, like two obviously superior albums that follow it. Um, Three. uh, Three. Well, yeah, but I, to me, I like this album more than I like Archaic Chords. Okay, I'll okay, give you that. No, I'm talking about Olden Domain and Quintessence. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about the next two. Okay. No, 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 no. I, but it, I, and I just adore the debut album. Weirdly, we're agreeing on the first four Borknagar albums in their ranking. That is incredibly odd. Yeah. Let, let us let us mark this on our calendars. <laughs> 
anyway, the uh, Borknagar album, also very, very typical of Grieg Hall, and I mean that in the best way. Just, just massive, massive. Sounds like it was recorded on the mountaintop with a big dome over it to kind of just make all the sounds kind of bounce off the walls and you know come I, you back. Know, I almost and, have to listen to this album on headphones. There, it's like it is such a din of sound. Like it, it like almost just dissolve all the sounds sort of dissolve into each other on uh, on speakers this stuff to me is hurt by anything less than a hi-fi listen and if you want to include you know headphones in there that's great I, I guess my point is like and i'm talking about it this way because once i built up my sound system to the point that it's at now uh, i realized that like things that are raw and kind of cheaply recorded, not, not to say Greek Hall and stuff's cheaply recorded, but just let's just say your typical like raw black metal stuff, or even like early Metal Massacre compilations, for instance, those are really hurt by the hi-fi listen. Like they just, the flaws come out even more. And I think this stuff that we're talking about here with Greek Hall and Peton, this stuff has to be big and booming and completely surrounding. And you know, it's it's weird to think about black metal as a hi-fi experience, but I think this stuff that we're highlighting tonight just has to be to get the full effect. Can, can I can can I have an aside? Of course. So 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 Jeff's first like major hi-fi upgrade. He plays me <laughs> as an introduction to his system. I know where you're going. Zizma's swarming of the maggots, and the first Sodom EP. What <laughs> you know. It was this was above the mind of morbidity, man. Does that change things? Uh, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's like they're moving pictures. Right, yeah, sure. Yeah. No, that was that was maybe not the best way to, to highlight my new turntable for you. I think you went for, like, um, carrying for worm after that. <laughs> <laughs> Nuclear death, baby. Stereophile's favorite. <laughs> So Borknagar, this is from uh, this is the the first song from their first album. We're gonna play a bit of that. You know everything we've said about it sonically. I also kind of want to mention Garm, who uh, was on the first two Borknagar albums. I think this is uh, of of all, of all his harsh performances, which there aren't a ton of them, but they're out there. Uh, I think this might be some of his best. This is him just screeching. Yeah, at, I'm inclined to agree. Yeah. Um, and then we're gonna move on to Gorgoroth, who uh, were led by Infernus, who. Uh, incidentally played on the first Borknagar album. This this band is infamous. This fourth album by Gorgoroth is infamous. Uh, this was, I want to note, produced by Infernus and engineered by Peton uh, and features Gall on vocals. Anything you want to say about this? To me, this is the pinnacle of cruel black metal. Like, music gets no more extreme than this. In fact, like, the track that we're going to play it's like basically black metal masquerading as like Merzbo or something. <laughs> it's like Merzbo meets Slayer. And, and too, like we have another, there's like an interesting thread that's forming here between Garmin and Furnace and then Infernus and then Gaul. And then we'll play another Gaul track later. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, in, in, it must be said that like, the Norwegian scene is nothing if not incestuous. Oh, I mean, let's like, mention, we're, yeah, we're going to play Eternus after Gorgoroth. Uh, we'll come back yeah, before we exactly. do, but that also features Ares, who was on Destroyer for a little bit. Exactly. So exactly. here we go. Let's talk about yep. incestuous, yeah. Um, let's start the incest with uh, Borknagar. <laughs> that's, <a>, that's a terrible <laughs> segue. Let's um, get the incest started. Let's get the incest started. That's going to be our, our new T-shirt slogan. <laughs> um, we're going to start with Borknagar and move on to Gorgoroth. Let's go. 
about as brutal a black metal album as you will ever hear. Yeah, I'm out of breath. Like, I mean, really, like the the intro to that that that's basically a middle finger to every band that has ever like started their record with an atmospheric intro. Yeah, just boom, crash the gates. They, the <laughs> gates are crashed open immediately. Like, like you think that like De Mysterious begins abruptly? <laughs> no. Yeah. Nah. Yeah. Uh, why? Why is Destroyer so reviled by a lot of people? I have no idea. But you know it is, um, right? No, yeah, absolutely, dude. Like, I know a lot of people that just stop at the third Gorgoroth record. Oh, that's, like, yeah. I have no idea because, like, if you like are interested in Gorgoroth, you're obviously <laughs> interested in like the more brutal aspects of like Norwegian black metal. And like to me, this is like the apotheosis of brutality in black metal. Yeah, how could they possibly have gone too far for people that liked Pentagram or Antichrist? Yeah, like this is like pushes things so much farther. Is it because it's a drum machine? Possibly. What about Mysticum? I mean, Mysticum's a, like a super like you know hardline black metal band that uses a drum machine and considered like, legendary I, by many. Yeah, I mean, like the drum machine. Could, should not be considered like a dividing line. Right. Like, I don't know if anything is more true to like the misanthropic black metal spirit than Destroyer. Uh, I have to, I have to agree with that. And, and too, like once you like get into the album's interior, it has all those like atmospheric and like melancholy, like elements that we value in that genre. Right. Yeah. I, I think, and I don't know if people are being this, choosy and picky about it but if if they're looking at the liner notes and they're understanding that like you know every song has a kind of a completely different lineup it's a very scattered album in terms of who played on it and right. and, and who played on which song i don't think it coheres in terms of like uh, being a, a smooth listen from point a to point z but yeah you know, maybe it's not supposed to. And and I think it's kind of a survey of sort of like almost every Gorgoroth lineup kind of mashed into one album. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's all by design. Yeah, totally. And I, totally. And I love that they like printed an, an excerpt, a stanza from one of Robert Frost's most beautiful poems, Desert Places, in the liner notes. Yeah, I have that right here. I want to read that. I was looking at that the other day thinking how it really was emblematic of everything not just about Gorgoroth, but about the whole black metal scene at this time. So yeah, this is the quote by Robert Frost. They cannot scare me with their empty spaces. Between stars on stars where no human race is. I have it in me so much nearer home to scare myself with my own desert places. That's, that. says it all. I, I, I gotta say, like, and I won't get into like too much confessional detail, but like that poem that one excerpt from that poem meant so much to me at one point in my life at before, a very before dark... you knew gorgoroth or oh no no way 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 like uh 14 15 years after i knew gorgoroth okay but yeah like yeah lot lot of lot of attachment to that album and that that one stanza from that poem very cool Let's move on to a couple bands that are Gorgoroth related uh, in terms of just having members that went through Gorgoroth. The first one is Eternus. And yeah, and we're kind of like getting like at this point, like with Eternus, I think we're kind of getting beyond the archetypal uh, Greek Holland aesthetic. And, and, and I think that's very, very important in this conversation because I think that Peton is defined by his you know his early involvement in this scene but like 
I think that what we're getting into now shows his capacity as a producer and also his capacity to manipulate the environment of the studio itself. The Eternus album and So the Night Became is just this rich, kind of rounded, uh, very epic, uh, almost in, in some ways it reminds me of a soundtrack in the, ter- in the way that it sort right. of unfurls and it takes its time. Certainly very one, patient. Yeah, very patient. It's, you know, it can, it can get speedy, but it generally takes its time getting to where it's getting uh, and has a very cinematic quality as a result. And I think Aries was going towards some death metal at this time. So you were getting a little bit of a different look at Peyton and Grieg Holland with this album. And man, I, I, I can't think of a more epic album. I mean, this is, this is up there with some of the most uh, triumphant primordial stuff. Or you know, or whoever. Oh, sure, man. Whoever you care to name, of course, the the epic Bathory uh, material. Uh, we're gonna listen to Eternus's Warrior of the Crescent Moon, and uh, we're gonna move to something that gets us back a little more into the uh, the scathing atmospheric black metal with uh, Treldom.
You know, I don't know if this is coincidence or not, but I hear in both the Eternus track and the Trelldom track, because we're playing these chronologically from point A to point B in terms of his chronology up until the point we're going to end anyway. And I, I'm hearing a little sturdiness and a little less uh, concentration on the trebly end of things and a little more bottom end, a little more bottom heavy. Are you hearing that too with, with these Absolutely. two later yeah. tracks? Yeah, and I mean, less um, less conspicuous atmosphere. Everything was kind of draped in reverb. It, and the reverb was almost sort of like a mechanism unto itself. Yeah, but like, you know, the later Peyton goes on, the more that he is kind of letting the sound of the bands sort of come through. And I mean, and I know like war metal is a thing unto itself and it has its own style, but like, tell me anything more warlike than that Eternus track or that <laughs> album itself. The album itself, for sure. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, a tank just rolling through a battlefield. And like if in two, like I, I know we're like the the focus is on the production and everything and on Peyton, but like if you want to hear black metal vocals at their most imaginative, I would really really recommend that you check out that Trelldom album till it and it. We butcher Scandinavian words all the time on the show <laughs> in keeping. But like, you know, Gaul sort of gets painted into a corner, like the sensationalism kind of overwhelms who he is as a vocalist. But if you were interested in the sort of imaginative uh, limits of black metal vocalists, then you should absolutely check out that second Trelldom record, Till Et Anit. He stretches himself in a way that very few black metal vocalists ever do. I, like, I think about Maniac on... Uh, Grand Declaration of War, um, mm -hmm. as a black metal vocalist showing, you know, such a capacity for, for uh, you know, uh, God. Well, dude. theatricality and, and yeah, sure drama, sure. Drama, yeah, absolutely. And, and role-playing in a lot of ways. And and I think Gall on that Trelldom song that we just heard, actually right after it fades out from what we played, there's a vocal moment that I think is so bizarre he kind of starts as he's like sort of out bizarring Attila from Mayhem. And then through the modulation of that of that line or those lines, there's a point where I'm like, this is like Snake if he was trying to be Quarthon on Killing Technology. I mean, <laughs> a very bizarre sort of role there. And then, and then it kind of ends with him finding the melody or the actual yeah. melodic voice because it's, it's pretty bizarre and pretty crazy. And... Um, even for black metal vocals. And he, he winds up at a place that kind of sounds like Garm uh, nailing some melodic moments. And sure. yeah, it's like, really, I just didn't know Gall had that in him, but he, he's so much range. Yeah. So much range. And he is incredible on that fifth Gorgoroth album uh, in Kip at Satan. And uh, just to back up to Eternus real quick before we move on, we didn't play the first song from the Eternus album. And that's really one of the best album openers of all time. It's a song yeah. called There's No Wine Like the Blood's Crimson. No words for that one. Uh, but you, you I, I might want to mention it. single-handedly be responsible for introducing that band to American audiences. Somebody else told me that recently that they bought that album because of my review. So, well, I mean, I bought it because like, nobody else was covering Eternus. Well, I was trying to champion Norway. And it was, it was like the flagship review in that, that issue as well. That's right. Yep, yep. Well, that's how into that album I was and am. So there you go. So interestingly, just about all the metal bands were black metal that Pete worked with. 
and just about all of them were Norwegian. But along but. came uh, a band with their third album called Maelstrom Chaos, who are from Sweden, and they wanted to work with Peten and Greg Holland. And who was he to say no? And uh, Jim from Lamentations of the Flame Princess actually was wondering if we knew how to pronounce this band's name. I think I've got it. I think uh, from what little I know of, of Swedish or whatever this is, I think it's Merck Greening, isn't it? Okay. Is that yes. right? It's great. It's definitely Greening. Okay. And is there is there an umlaut over the... Uh, over the oh, O, yes. I guess, yeah, Merck Greening. Merck Greening. Okay, we got it. Most say more grinding. <laughs> Peasants. Nanu, nanu. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So here they come. And this is, I believe this is the only album that Merck Greening recorded in Greek Holland. And this is an interesting one because as we were talking about with Treldom and Eternus and just a little more refinement maybe of the sound, a little less of the that echo chamber thing. This is a cool album. This is a very creative album. I love this album. But production-wise, it's not its not what I would say is typical Pete or Greg Holland either, right? No, it's pretty hi-fi, actually. Yeah. Yeah, let's listen. This is um, the title track to Merck Greening's Maelstrom Chaos. I got to say that some of the guitar work throughout that song is pretty stunning. No, I think that like the guitar work on that album and the two that follow like is super imaginative. 
Yeah, they're pretty interesting at this point in, in their evolution. And uh, I, I have to say, I'm not sure I would know that that's a Pete and Greg Holland production, actually. In, in, was, in listening back, because uh, for one, when it gets really blazing, that double bass sound is just not like anything we've, we've listened to for the rest of this episode. Much more defined. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, like, you actually played this for me for the first time. Yeah. And, um, like, I would have had no idea that this was Peyton. Exactly, yeah. But um, that's sort of what we're trying to highlight tonight, right? Right. It's like, yeah, I mean, this guy, he's, you know, he's a a man of talent. Absolutely. 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 Um, And let's, let's, let's mention he's, he's handled other productions outside of metal, period. A lot of... Uh, Norwegian names that, you know, I, I have no idea about. I, we thought about playing some of those, but it would just seem just a little too out of place. You know? And muddy the water. Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, nothing wrong with that. And I think uh, I think he's probably able to flex a lot of different muscles in the studio and just ended up uh, being born for uh, producing awesome black metal. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, hey, look, as, you know, as fates go. Yeah. Not too bad. Yeah. So Enslaved was a band that worked with him pretty consistently in the early years, quite a bit. Uh, Most of their early albums are done by him. Uh, They left for the Bloodhem album and the Mardrum album for, uh, I believe, Abyss. And then they came back for their next three albums before leaving Greek Holland, I believe, entirely. Uh, The first album they came back for was the very divisive Monumention album. This thing sounds great. Uh, you know, you can say what you want about the composition and where Enslaved were at at this time, but um, this thing just sounds utterly fantastic. One of my favorite Pete and Productions ever. But, and one of my favorite Enslaved records. Well, I was just going to say, it, it's, it probably ranks on our top three. We've never done the it's top th- What are your top three Enslaved albums? Because I'll do mine, and uh, we'll see if Manya mentions on both of those. My top three Enslaved records are Eld, Monumention and Issa. Okay. Okay. Mine are probably, boy, I haven't really had to do this. Mine are probably Monumention, Issa, maybe Mardrum. All right, cool. But Monumention, there you go. It's it's in uh, both of our three. Yep. And doesn't tend to make anybody's top five or ten even. And uh, like Monumention actually kind of plays into the first time that you and I met. The, when uh, you locked your keys in your car, then you almost rear-ended me. And then Nathan drank glass, <laughs> we listened to Lost Horizon and Host, yep. and saw a guy literally like leave a motel from having sex with a prostitute. Yep. And we met Dan Swano that day. <laughs> we met Dan Swano. We met, uh, or I met Steve DiGiorgio, which was a gigantic disappointment. Oh, and um, we saw, and we saw, and we saw Spiral Architect, Spiral Architect play. Yeah, and we met them, and they were gigantic dicks. Uh, well, at, you said Asgear was. They were all kind of aloof. Asgear was a complete asshole. Why did you say Steve DiGiorgio was a disappointment to meet? Dude, he was like. How you been, Ben? And then he like he goes, "Hey, Hunter, be cool to those animals, man." <laughs> Dude, I, I don't know. Steve's like, a great I've guy. Steve- I've been worshiping Steve DiGiorgio since I was like twelve, and then like that was how I met him. I don't know. Steve's a great guy. I can vouch hey, for that. Much love to Steve DiGiorgio. And I could probably yeah. say he was probably just stone as hell, and you know, 
Yeah. I mean, that's just what's going to, it's what's going to happen, but, uh, I still love you, Steve. What a day. And yeah, that was, uh, that was during monumental times for sure. I remember that being part of that whole, uh, scenario that, <laughs> that crazy 48 hours in Atlanta. <laughs> Getting back to that, let's listen. I mean, this. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the production of this album and, and how uh, how it's treated in terms of the material that they're doing really, at this time? Really, like a weird production. Like it's very, like when I think about um, when I think about like Black Sabbath, like Sabbath Bloody Sabbath and Sabotage. Like I think of like this kind of comforting blanket, like this blanket of sound. Here comes the blanket uh, again. Here, like I feel that on Monumental, like yeah. it, like you know, it's just warm yeah. and engrossing and encompassing, and like I get all that on this album. The drum production's really weird. It, yeah. It's very um, indirect. Like it's not um, like it has no attack to it, mm-hmm. which is weird for Dirt Rep because he's such a brutal drummer. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, but like. I, I just think it's like perfect for what it is. It is. There's a warmth to it that that reminds me of a seventies album. And here's exactly. some, and I think that's kind of intentional. And here's something we haven't talked about yet, and something that I haven't researched, and maybe it's not even out there, but most of this stuff I'm gonna assume was recorded on tape. And Monumention is what, a two thousand one album. And I and I think that still probably was recorded on tape. It at least sounds like it. It has it had dude, this was recorded on tape. Whereas I wonder about the Merc Greening, where that just sounds completely digital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, I do wonder it about his super analog. Yeah, I do wonder about his method if he was recording on reel to reel at the time, and and you know uh, the thickness of those reels. I just wonder like uh, those technical specs. I wish we could have that for the show, but I tried doing research, and man, it's just not out there. We'll just say this was recorded on two inch tape, and we'll go with that. Cool. I'm uh, good with that. Half inch is just not enough for these guys. Uh, just the bigger the better. That's what she said. <laughs> We're devolving. We're actually going to stop here too because uh, I think we've made the point. Peyton has done other productions that uh, went through the uh, the aughts and into the uh, the current teens. Uh, but we're going to stop here. We think this is a good place to end. And like I said, I think you get the point. Let's listen to a little bit from the wonderful Monumental by the wonderful Enslaved. This is the awesome Cromleck Gate.
think that track, along with Mort Greening, um, shows Peden's capacity to produce uh, albums uh, in a way that were quite a bit different from the early 90s uh, kind of iconic black metal records, coaxing a, you know, a richness and a, a, a depth out of that studio um, that's not typically associated with it. And so Jeff and I would like to have a little what-if scenario. So Jeff, what if? We're traveling down the portal of what if. What are the four albums, let's just keep it to four, or bands that you wish Peyton would have produced in Greg Holland? You go. I think it'd be interesting to hear what the first In the Woods album would have sounded like. Heart of the Ages. Um, nothing wrong with that production. I just feel like it's sort of hinting at something that could have been possibly even greater coming out of Grieg Holland. Uh, so that's my first choice. Um, almost anything by Death Spell Omega. Just be very curious. Ooh. Just be very curious to hear how he would handle those guys. Yep. Uh, because you know clearly he was adept at handling total chaos, and um, I, th- I think he would have done quite well with them. The other thing is Abigor, actually. Oh, yeah. I feel like they like were always... The first four Abigor records? Yeah, sure. I feel like they were totally reaching for a Peton-like thing on, like, say, Opus 4, maybe. I don't think they're lacking for not having Peton, but again, I, I just think it's one of those bands and that era of Abigor would have been um, really, really interesting if they kind of went to Grieg Hall and recorded there. And really the, the biggest wish and probably the, the biggest what if, because it would have never happened, is King Diamond post the eye. Because Ooh, nice. those Metal Blade albums are, I don't think they're as well written as what we call the Roadrunner albums. But I, I think the major problems with all of those, because uh, you, know, you and I are in that camp of like the Roadrunner albums are amazing, the Metal Blade albums not so much. And part of the problem is not just the writing, but the lack of reverb and and the dryness of those later King Diamond albums. And I mean, King Diamond and and really Reunion Era Merciful Fate, for that matter, needs the echo of Grigolin. For sure. That's a dude. That is such a great point. But it never would have happened. So, yeah. Great point, though. Thank you. What about yours? So for me, he obviously can handle a death metal band. So I kind of wish that Cemetery had recorded an evil shade of gray with Peyton. Oh, interesting. Because that's a really ghostly record. Like the guitars are kind of weird sounding on it anyway. Like I feel like he could have done a lot of good with that record. Mm. Um, my next choice, Slow Dive, Just for a Day, their first <laughs> record. Nice. I, do, I mean, like the guy obviously has, you know, a handle on atmosphere. Yeah. I think it'd be cool to hear that record recorded in like a more cavernous environment. Sure. Um, my third choice, Anecdoten Vaymod. Uh-huh. Um, I would love to hear him record a prog rock band, and especially a Scandinavian one. Boy, if if I start thinking of that, we're going to be here all night. Because you're right. That's <laughs> that's a really good point. I would love. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that until just now. Good, good one. He would have been amazing with some of those kinds of bands. He would have been, man. I mean, I really think he would have like. In fact, I think he may have even been more in his element. I'm going to petition for this. We're going to get him okay. to, to start working with those sorts of bands. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my, my fourth and final pick, uh, Nocturnal Rites in a Time of Blood and Fire. Wow. 
I stuck to the I, black metal. You went out and you you win. Those are great. <laughs> yeah, those are great. I, I just think I, I like that record has an atmosphere about it. I think Peyton could have maybe even enhanced that. For sure, for sure. Yeah, that album's kind of getting there in terms of that uh, of the sound that it has. Yeah, no, no doubt. Exactly. Um, but it's got qualities that you could see being sort of like teased out better by Peyton. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Hail to Peyton, hail to Grieg Hall, and we all need uh, more of that stuff in our life. So uh, all hails. Keep listening. Thank you for listening to this. Let's talk about episode twenty-six, Hunter. When you think about great Canadian trios, who comes to mind? No means no. Most people say Rush, <laughs> but we say Rush and No Means and No. And No Means No. Absolutely. Do you want to do an episode on those guys? I think I could manage that. Those amazing, amazing motherfuckers in No Means No. We love them. Uh, we're just going to do a fun sort of random survey. We're not really going to go chronologically. We're just going to throw out maybe 10 or 11 of our favorite No Means No moments. This is a very, no. very special band. We'll be back in two weeks with Radical Research and No Means No. This is Jeff Wagner. And Hunter Ginn. Keep metal weird. Keep prog weird.